0: We return to the book of Joshua, picking up our reading at the beginning of chapter 2. While on the eastern bank of the Jordan, Israel's army prepared for the invasion of Canaan, spies were sent to reconnoiter the area into which the Israelite army was about to move, and in particular, The first fortified city that lay in its path of conquest. That city was Jericho. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Shittim, if you remember, was where Israelite men consorted with Moabite women and were led by them into the worship of idols, particularly the Baal of Peor. So the attentive reader, and the Israelite who first heard this being read in his synagogue would remember that name very well. He is reminded, as the account begins, of the danger of Canaanite women and the false gods of the land. Indeed we read that at Shittim the men of Israel began to prostitute themselves, a form of the same word as is used here to identify Rahab's occupation. That the men go to a prostitute's house to lodge might raise immediate doubts about the spiritual fidelity of these two men. This woman is identified as a prostitute, why? Why is that important? But there's something else. The prostitute is given a name. We don't know the spies' names, but we do know the name of this woman. Why is that? The reader wonders. Obviously, she is going to be the center of the story. Rahab's house was probably an inn or a tavern, the sort of place strangers would not stand out And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. To make matters worse, the spies had been unable to avoid detection. The spies were sent secretly, as we read in verse 1, but in maintaining the secrecy of their identity, or the secret of their identity, they were singularly ineffective. Not so much was this the case that it appears that the informants of the king knew not only who they were, but where they were. It doesn't appear that these men were the sharpest knives in the drawer. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. They also know what this, what, that they are spies and what they, have, what they have been assigned to do. Now the king's command puts Rahab at great risk. If she didn't produce the men, she would be considered an accomplice and punished accordingly. By the way, the so-called king of Jericho was hardly a great ruler. He was at most a kinglet who ruled over a small city and its surrounding land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. As so often in the Old Testament narrative, when a lie was employed to protect the people of God or to advance some interest of the Lord, the narrator seems to show no concern about the telling of the the obvious untruth. A professor of mine in his very fine book on biblical ethics considered the case of Rahab, and at least more honestly than some, acknowledged how very much and how very well she lied. No half truth or equivocation or mental reservation, but a pure fabrication to put the hounds off the scent. In classic Western, they went that away. <laughs> Probably no particular incident in biblical history has been considered in greater detail by Christian ethicists through the ages as Rahab's lie. It was already an old controversy in Augustine's day. Was it right for her to do what she did in deceiving her king and his servants? If not, why not, given that the spies would surely have been caught and executed? If so, how so, given that we are commanded not to lie? There are many things that have been said and might be said, but for the moment it's enough to say that the ethics of war and the ethics of peace are not the same. To be sure there are overarching ethical principles that are the same apply universally in every situation but it's obvious as well that there are people who do not deserve to be told the truth. If you remember 38 years before God himself ordered spies into the promised land as we read in Numbers 13 spies in the nature of the case are deceivers they are liars Such lies, however, are regrettably necessary in certain extreme situations but it is part of our loyalty to the Lord to recognize that there will be very few situations in our lives in which it is permissible for us to tell a lie. George Sayer, the biographer of C.S. Lewis, recollects being on a walk with Lewis once. Lewis, as you know, was a great walker. When a fox bedraggled and exhausted ran by them trying to escape the hunt that was following behind. Oh poor thing, said Lewis, what shall we do when the hunt comes up? I can already hear them. Oh I know, I have an idea. He cupped his hands and shouted to the first riders, hey, gone that away, and pointed to the direction opposite the one the fox had taken. The whole hunt followed his directions. There followed a long discussion about when lying was justifiable, (laughs) but he boasted delightedly later later to my wife that he had saved the life of a poor fox and showed no trace of guilt. I'm not so sure that lie passes muster. But what of this? Both the books that William Tyndall published in 1528, The Parable of the Wicked Mammon and The Obedience of the Christian Man, carried the name of a non-existent printer, one Hans Luft, and a false place name, Marburg, being in fact printed by John Hochstraten at Antwerp. This was an effort to protect those who were associated with Tyndall's dissemination of the teaching of the gospel as it had been rediscovered at the time of the Reformation. What do you think? Verse 6. Now if the events narrated in Exodus and Numbers had indeed taken place, it's no wonder that the peoples of Canaan would not have heard about them. We know from a variety of evidence that there was a great deal of traffic and so of communication all over this part of the ancient Near East. But once once they realized that the Israelites had set their sights on Canaan, it would have unnerved them. They had bested Egypt, the great imperial power of the world of that day. What were they going to do to the minor potentates that were scattered all over Canaan? Rahab apparently alone among the citizens of Jericho had drawn the appropriate lesson. Israel's God was the living and true God. Her only hope lay in Yahweh being merciful to her and her family. Real faith never contents itself with knowledge of the facts alone. It invariably acts on those facts. If God's wrath is about to overwhelm her city, she must seek refuge for herself and her loved ones where that refuge can be found. The God whose wrath she fears. Twice in the New Testament, Rahab is commended for her acting faith. The first thing she says about God effectively is that there is no other God. The Lord your God, He is God. That put the so-called gods of Canaan immediately in their place as non-entities. What is interesting and important is that Rahab didn't need to confess Yahweh as God. She could have bargained with the spies to save her life in exchange for theirs and left God out of it entirely. But her confession was obviously something that had settled in her mind and her heart as a conviction. She'd made up her mind about God. She realized that she was dealing with Yahweh more than she was dealing with the Israelite spies. On we go, verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, You also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land... You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent him away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. There is some question about whether these conditions attached to the promise after the fact represent some realization on the part of the spies that in making their promise to Rahab, they had overstepped their bounds. Now that they were safe, they had recovered their confidence. So they attached conditions by which the oath they swore to Rahab made under duress might be nullified in the end. You'll notice that twice the spies referred to their oath as one that Rahab made them swear. As if somehow or another, they weren't quite as equal parties in the exchange. But Rahab is untroubled by these new conditions. She readily agrees because the promise that really matters is still in place. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Whatever they thought of Rahab by this time they trusted her advice sufficiently to follow it to the letter. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. In other words, the spies told Joshua what Rahab had told them. The emphasis falls upon this woman throughout the chapter. Our Father in heaven, we are so familiar with this story. We have have its um, artistic representation beautifully in wood hanging on our narthex wall. We're familiar with Rahab and with how she saved the spies." But Lord, there is more here than meets the eye. Help us to enter into this history and to take from it what its author intended us to learn and to believe. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now the highly interesting fact is that chapter 2 is not really necessary to the narrative of Israel's entrance into the promised land. If chapter 3 had followed chapter 1, it would have made for a seamless account. No reader would have thought that anything had been omitted. In chapter 1 we read of Israel preparing to cross the Jordan and in chapter 3 of her doing so. Nothing materially would have changed if we'd never heard of Rahab. In fact, nothing she told the spies materially changed the situation that Joshua faced. He didn't change his plan of attack because of anything Rahab had said. But from years of reading Old Testament narrative, we have learned that the biblical authors chose to include material precisely because it conveyed the lessons they intended to teach. Theology and ethics. The author of Joshua conveyed the lessons that he intended to teach by the material he chose to include and by the way he wrote up the history. And he thought the material in chapter 2 was essential to include in his history. It could have been added as an addendum to the story of the fall of Jericho at the end of chapter 6. But instead, it's right here at the very beginning of the book. Also a conscious choice on his part. Things he wants us to know at the very outset of his narrative. Something of great importance to the story of Israel's conquest of the promised land. What in fact we have in this narrative is history that lays bare the theological realities that are going to explain and account for Israel's conquest of Canaan. The fact is, this chapter literally bristles with some of the most fundamental and fabulously important and profoundly fundamental or basic perspectives of biblical faith. This is its importance, and this explains why so much attention is paid to the first encounter between Israel and a citizen of Canaan. There is first the fundamental assertion of human accountability and the significance of human effort. Israel has to take the promised land. Is she ready to do so? Is she willing to do so? You may not be aware that there is a long-standing argument among those who comment on this text as to whether Joshua's decision to send spies into Canaan represented some measure of timidity, even unbelief on his part. After all, hadn't the Lord told him that he would give the land to Israel and that none of her enemies could stand before her? If so, what did Joshua need spies for? Particularly as it does not appear that they brought back any information that would prove very useful in either tactical or strategic military planning. The only intelligence they provided was that the Canaanites were cowering in fear. That certainly would have been encouraging to hear, but it wouldn't change Joshua's order of battle or his plan of attack. So what were the spies sent into Canaan to learn? We're not given sufficient information to answer that question, but the fact is, as will become perfectly obvious as we proceed, Israel still had to fight. She still had to win battles. Joshua still had to plan the army's movement and prepare it to fight intelligently and successfully. The sending of the 12 spies years before might have been criticized for the very same reasons. After all, wasn't God with Israel? Wasn't he going to give her the promised land? But it was obviously appropriate to spy out the land because God himself ordered it to be done. Numbers 13. Israel was to fight in Canaan as an army, and armies need intelligence. For all we know, the spies came back with some useful information about the topography of the land on the immediate western side of the Jordan River, ideal places for encampment, possible routes to Jericho, and so on. If you remember from our studies in Numbers, Israel had the cloud and the pillar of fire to guide her through the wilderness. When it moved, she moved after it. Where it stopped, she camped. Nevertheless, Moses pled with Hobah, a Midianite, to remain with Israel as she traveled through the wilderness because, he said, Hobah knew where the best camping places were to be found. What do you need that kind of intelligence for if you've got a pillar of fire and a cloud that moves in front of you everywhere you go? The cloud did not make Hobad's knowledge of the terrain useless any more than Yahweh's promise to defeat the Canaanites made the gathering of intelligence or the planning of the army's march or the tactics for its battles unimportant or unnecessary. What we have here is a perspective so fundamental to our lives and our faith, that we find it face up on every single page of the Word of God. So familiar to us, we hardly notice it. As Rabbi Duncan of the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian Church famously put it, that God does half and man does half is wrong. That God does all and man does all is right. We have no way of knowing how Joshua's plans might have changed had the spies not returned from their foray into Canaan. But they did return thanks to Rahab and as we will see the battle was taken to Jericho and the city fell. Christians likewise have work to do in the taking of heaven. Have effort, lots of effort to exert. They must think, they must plan they must learn, gather intelligence, then put it into practice. A fundamental lesson of faith and crucial as Israel begins to move into the promised land. She has work to do, fighting to do. Will she do it? God saves us by his grace, but he uses our effort in the process. Another fundamental And fundamentally important feature of the history of Israel's conquest of Canaan, and one we'll have cause to consider in much greater detail later, is that Israel's war of conquest against the people of Canaan was the execution of divine judgment. Israel was not, in fact, simply stealing the land of innocent folk who were minding their own business. This is the way far too many people characterize this history. But as the Bible is at pains to make clear, the Lord was using Israel to judge a pervasively and defiantly wicked people. It was for this reason that Israel had to wait for some six centuries for the possession of the land that Yahweh had promised to her. She had to wait, we read, way back in Genesis 15, because the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet full. Israel got Canaan, not only because Yahweh had promised it to her, but just as much because the Lord would not permit the Canaanites to hold on to it any longer. His patience with this corrupt, dissipated, and cruel people had reached its end. I don't know if you noticed this, but it has long been pointed out and it would have been very, very obvious to the Hebrew ear who listened to this narrative being read, that throughout this account of the spies' visit to Jericho, we hear echoes of the narrative of the Lord and his angels' visit to Sodom and Gomorrah before the destruction of those cities. In the first case also the visitors arrived. They were hosted in the home of a citizen of the town, a citizen who happens to have realized that the behavior of his fellow citizens had brought down upon the town the wrath of God. The citizens came looking for the visitors to do them harm and they escaped in the nick of time. There is a sexual element in each as well. Here a prostitute, there the threat of homosexual and then heterosexual rape. Even some of the vocabulary in which the story is told is reminiscent of the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're being told something about Jericho in this subtle but very powerful way. There's a reason why this city has been marked for destruction. Like Sodom, its sins have gone up to God and he was unwilling any longer to permit them to remain unpunished. The more we learn about Canaanite culture in the middle of the 15th century or the middle of the second millennium BC, the more we understand Yahweh's determination to rid the world of that society. What really ought to worry us is how many similarities to the life of ancient Canaan we can find today in the culture of the modern West. Here is another fundamental article. Of our faith. Salvation and judgment go together. The same acts cause both results at once. Jerusalem and Gehenna lie very close to one another. Jericho had to go so that Israel might inherit the promised land. But more important still in this narrative is the conversion of a Canaanite pagan. A person, indeed a family, marked for destruction with the rest of her people is spared on account of her confession of faith in Yahweh. That such a thing should have happened at the very beginning of the narrative of Israel's conquest of Canaan is fabulously important. It is a dramatic demonstration of the fact that the destruction of Canaanite society was not a pogrom, It had no racial element. It wasn't conquest for the sake of material gain. It was not only divine judgment against a wicked people. It was the blessing and the reward of those who trusted in the Lord. Remember, as we've already noted in several of these first sermons on Joshua, Canaan is a type or an embodied prophecy of heaven. Rahab is the proof that those who enter heaven... Do so not because of their ethnic or national identity. Not because they find themselves in the right place at the right time. Not because they are better than others. Rahab was a prostitute, a very important point in this history. But only because they trust in the Lord and confess Him as Lord. There are so many texts in the New Testament that the Rahab episode illustrates But chief among them is John John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Remember how many times in the New Testament Jesus is identified with Yahweh? We might just as well have read Rahab as saying in verse 11, Jesus is Lord. Which, if you remember, Paul writes, no one can say, not say and really mean, except by the Holy Spirit. Rahab belonged to a wicked people. She was a pagan. Imagine her earlier life. She had a family, probably not a husband. She would later marry an Israelite man. But she made her living in a disreputable and dehumanizing occupation. As disreputable and as dehumanizing in her day as it is in ours. She impresses us here and perhaps she was a very able woman. But the life of a prostitute is a hard life and would have been still worse in 15th century B.C. Canaan. She had probably adjusted herself to this life in Canaanite society, brutalized and brutalizing as it was. It never ceases to amaze me what people can get used to. But this woman came to trust in the Lord. And she was saved together with her family. I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Was a promise Yahweh made to all who believe in him. Whatever their background. However wicked their past. Indeed we'll read later not only that Rahab became a citizen of Israel. But married an Israelite and became an ancestress of Jesus Christ. While there is no great commission in the Old Testament. The Israelites were never duty-bound to make disciples of all nations as we are. Nevertheless, there were not a few who found their way into Israel because they came to believe in Israel's God. Indeed, of the four women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that we find in Matthew chapter 1, all besides Mary, his mother, were pagan outsiders who came into Israel as believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Yahweh had to be sure forbidden Israel to enter agreements into agreements with the Canaanites. We read about that in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20. But obviously that didn't mean Canaanites who confessed Yahweh as Lord. Rahab was added to Israel. Later Ruth would be. Later still we read of Naaman the Syrian general who placed his faith in Yahweh during the days of Elisha the prophet. If the door to heaven was not wide open in the age before Pentecost, it was at least ajar and willing hearts from any people were welcome to enter in. Rahab was not the first Canaanite convert to faith in the living God. Or she was the first, but she would not be the last. If you want to know why, the author of the book of Joshua thought it so important to report this episode of the spies and Rahab, consider this, that the Canaanite lady of ill repute became a hero of Israel's history and an ancestress of the king of kings is the entire message of the Bible compressed into a single individual's personal history. And if the history of Joshua and the conquest of Canaan is a picture of the salvation of the people of God and the rest of the Bible teaches us that it is, then Rahab teaches us that anyone can find that salvation if only he or she will believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How did Rahab learn the truth about Yahweh? How did she come to realize what the lordship of Yahweh meant and what it required of her? We're not told. But then such things have happened times without number ever since. A person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ with little or no help from anybody else. In such cases, the Holy Spirit reminds us that it is he who changes the heart and illuminates the mind. One of the most remarkable Christians of the 20th century was an Indian convert to the Christian faith by the name of Sundar Singh. If you remember his story, still in his early teens, Sundar was brought to faith in Christ out of a wealthy Sikh family in the Punjab that opposed his conversion at every turn. On one occasion, they even tried to poison him. Like Rahab, his conversion to Christ was not the result of an environment that encouraged the Christian faith. Far from it. Better dead than a Christian was the thinking of his Sikh culture and his Sikh family. But in despair about finding the truth and the meaning of life, one night when he was 15 years of age, he had a dream. Like the dreams we hear so much of in Muslim Conversion stories nowadays, like the dreams, the dream rather, that you can hear about in the conversion account of Eric Metaxas, whom we know as a congregation. Like Rahab, it was not enough for Singh to believe in Christ. He had to act on his belief, became a Christian sadhu or holy man or traveling preacher. And he spent the rest of his relatively short life traveling through India and nearby countries, especially Nepal and Tibet, preaching Christ to people who often treated him terribly for bringing what they took to be an unwelcome message. Thrown into prisons, jails, repeatedly, stoned, bones broken, often sick, having to fend for himself when injured, often very cold, He never wavered once in his service of the king. Hated by the religious leaders of the places to which he went. Set upon by mobs. His was a seriously active faith in the Lord. And also like Rahab, in faith he carried his family to heaven with him. All the while Sundar Singh was traveling and preaching the gospel. He was praying for his family at home. The family that had cursed him. And had thrown him out of the house when he was 15 years of age. Many others became Christians through his preaching. But all the while he prayed for his family. 14 years after his conversion, his father became a Christian as well. And in the later years of the Sadhu's ministry, his father was his chief supporter. The 15th century before Christ the 20th century after Christ. It's all the same. Faith laying hold of Yahweh, of Jesus Christ for oneself and for others. Some of you may remember Marshall McLuhan's famous illustration of the light bulb, often referred to as McLuhan's light bulb. This is the Marshall McLuhan famous for the adage, The medium is the message, a reminder that technology has its own message, its own power over our perceptions, its own influence over the way we think and what we believe. Imagine entering a pitch black room. McLuhan asks the question, how would your your behavior be affected by the darkness? Well, he says you would be more cautious. Reserved, careful, unable to see what else or who else was in the room, unable to see the other people's facial expressions, your communication with people that you encountered would be more guarded. You don't know who or what may be in the room where whoever or whatever is there is located. You would step very carefully. You would be hesitant, unsure. But if the room is lit, your behavior changes radically. You walk more confidently. You speak with ease and assurance because you can see who is there, how they're reacting to what you say to them. You hardly give a thought. In fact, you don't give a thought to taking your next step because you know where everything is. Nothing has changed in the room. Only the way you perceive it. The reality is unchanged, but the light bulb has transformed the way you experience that reality. Well, so it was with Rahab, and so it is with every Christian believer. The light went on, and she saw what was really there, what was really happening. Like Lydia in the New Testament, the Lord opened her heart to see the truth, and once she saw it, Her entire approach to life was radically transformed. The same reality was bearing down on everyone else in Jericho, but the light bulb went on only in Rahab's mind and heart. And then she took action. And what was that action? She confessed Jesus, Yahweh, as Lord and God, confessed his name and acted accordingly. That's what Israel is going to have to do. Confess Yahweh's name and act accordingly. And that's what you and I have to do. Every day we live, confess the Lord's name and act accordingly.